Gee, thanks, Clara. Thanks for reading. And uh, good evening. My name's Mike. I'm one of the pastors here at church. And uh, a very famous verse of Jesus we have uh, tonight to look at and hopefully to understand rightly. But let me pray that God might help us uh, to rightly understand the things he tells us in his word. Let me pray. Well, Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you that you are a speaking God. Uh, We thank you that you haven't left us in darkness, uh, but you've revealed yourself to us in your word, in history, most mightily in Jesus, your Son. And we pray this evening that we might rightly hear and understand your word and live it for the sake of your glory and for the sake of our good. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, just have a look again at what Clara just read. Matthew chapter 17, verse 20. Have a look again. Chapter 17, verse 20. Jesus declares, I assure you, if you have faith like a mustard seed, you will tell this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. That's massive, right? Big words. If only you have a little bit of faith, like a mustard seed, like a little mustard seed, well, with that, you can move the immovable. Uh, you can move mountains. I think that sounds pretty cool. You know, it makes me kind of think, where do I sign up? Where do I get some of that? And uh, sadly, this is one of those verses that is so wonderful and is so incredible and a great promise of God and yet has often been so abused. And so the line uh, kind of goes like this. If you just imagine a YouTube video or Sunday morning uh, television with the uh, evangelist preacher on the TV wearing a nice suit and having a very nice watch. Uh, don't worry, I'm not wearing a watch. And I think I've got a hole in my jumper, so I haven't got a nice suit. But, but the line usually goes something like this, particularly on this verse. It goes something like this. What are the mountains in your life? You know, what, are, what are those obstacles you need to overcome? What are those mountains that you need to climb and conquer in this world? Are they financial? Are they physical? Are they emotional? That suffering, your dream, your illness. Well, Jesus says, my brethren, the Lord promises, my brothers and sisters, if only you have faith, then you can move mountains. You can move the immovable, the impossible, my dear brothers and sisters, if only you believe, can be done. And now I feel like buying myself a white suit and a fancy watch. And it's, it's a little bit laughable when you hear it and you watch that kind of preaching and teaching But it's not laughable because it happens and it's so damaging. A friend of mine, uh, we were late high school and uh, he has a disability and uh, he'd had it since he was young, two or three years old. He uh, sadly had a head injury at that age. And uh, another Christian said to him that if only he believed God could heal him, God could take away his disability, God could make him like everyone else. And uh, this friend of mine is not a Christian, he's still not a Christian. And he, he, he kind of bought that for a bit. And it never happened. He never got healed. And ever since then, it's made it harder and harder to share the gospel with him because he, he was told this, this lie from Jesus' words. Or sometimes this verse causes people to question whether their faith is big enough or strong enough. And so maybe life is hard for you. Maybe things aren't going well. Maybe you're struggling. And you start wondering, well, is my faith the problem? And some well-meaning Christian or preacher comes along and says, Oh no, God wants to bless you. God is pleased to bless you. He can move those mountains in your life. You just need to believe. And whenever preachers and teachers or even well-meaning Christians take this verse or similar verses in that way, you have to wonder if they've read very much of the rest of the Bible. If you just flick one page back, 
Just one page back to Matthew chapter 16. We'll look at that at, uh, two weeks ago. And what did Jesus say in Matthew 16? Jesus says, whoever wants to come after me must deny himself, take up his cross. In other words, go to his death, go to her death and follow. And clearly that's not a promise to a life where the immovable mountains in your life will be moved by faith. And so any serious reading of God's word can't simply take this verse out of the Bible and find a, a pretty picture of a mountain somewhere off you know, Google and insert the, 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 uh, the, the verse on top of the mountain and frame it and stick it up in your kitchen somewhere and then believe that Jesus promises to remove the mountains in your life. That's just lazy reading of God's word. But nevertheless, Jesus does say, he's what he says right here, he says, I assure you, If you have faith like a mustard seed, you will tell this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. So what does Jesus mean? What is he saying to us? Well, that's our task for us for tonight. And as we begin, just remember what has just happened. So Peter, James, and John, they went on top of the mountain with Jesus, and they had this this marvelous, glorious scene where Jesus was transfigured before them, this, this glorious moment. And just to boot, you know, Moses and Elijah also appear. So there's been this incredible moment that the three disciples and Jesus have just shared. But as they come back down the mountain, things now are quite different. Uh, because that sort of incredible, miraculous thing has not been happening. Uh, just look at verse 14, Matthew chapter 17, verse 14. So uh, the three disciples, when Jesus come down, I assume the other nine disciples are there. And when they reach the crowd, verse 14... A man approached and knelt down before Jesus, and he said, Lord, have mercy on my son, because he has seizures and suffers severely. He often falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples, but they could not heal him. And before we go to Jesus' reply, which is quite a strong reply, what Jesus says is in some ways quite confronting, But before we go to what Jesus says, just remember what's happened already back in Matthew chapter 10. Because Jesus had sent out his disciples and did give them authority to do these sorts of things, to heal and drive out demons. So it's up on the screen, Matthew chapter 10, verse 7. Jesus had sent the disciples out and he said this, he said, As you go, announce this, the kingdom of heaven has come near, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those with skin diseases, drive out demons. And so there was this expectation that these disciples should be able to heal this boy. That The father didn't go to them in vain. He, he knew that they were able to do this. Jesus had given them the authority to do so. But the next thing I want us to know before we move to Jesus' reply is that in Mark's gospel, so when Mark retells this exact same event, he tells us that the father himself was part of the problem. Uh, so up on the screen, uh, Mark chapter 9, the father brings his son to Jesus because uh, the, the disciples couldn't heal him. And as the father comes to Jesus, he says this, he says, but if you, Jesus, can do anything, have compassion on us, help us. In other words, heal my son because your disciples could not do it. But in verse 23, Jesus said to him, to the father of the son, if you can, everything is possible to the one who believes. And immediately the father of the boy cried out, I do believe, help my unbelief. 
And so it's not only the disciples' failure to do what Jesus had given them authority to do, to heal and drive out demons, but it's actually the Father's lack of belief that this could happen. He didn't believe that the disciples could do this. And when we remember those two things, I think it helps us to understand what Jesus says next. Because the words of Jesus here are very much loaded. They're aimed at the Father. They're aimed at the disciples. And really, they're aimed at the whole crowd. See, verse 17, have a look. Verse 17, Jesus replied, You unbelieving and rebellious generation, how long will I be with you? How long must I put up with you? Bring him here to me. Then Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, out of the boy, And from that moment, the boy was healed. And so why was it that the boy was unable to be healed? And why was it that the disciples were unable to cast out this demon? And why was the father in great despair as he came to Jesus asking for mercy? Well, Jesus is saying, because all of you, the disciples, the father, the crowd, you are a part of this faithless generation. You are an unbelieving and rebellious or twisted generation. These are strong words. And you can clearly sense Jesus' displeasure in his voice. How long, Jesus says, you know, how long do I need to keep putting up with you? And really, uh, fair enough. You see, we don't have the time now, but if we reread Matthew's gospel up until this point, you'd see that Jesus has often called out this generation. Often he's called them out. They've been so slow to understand. They've been so slow to believe who Jesus is that he has done miracle after miracle right in front of their eyes. He's done incredible deed after incredible deed. That the things only God could do, that's the only reasonable conclusion that he is God, that he is the one of Isaiah 35, the one who was promised to come and would open blind eyes and help deaf ears to hear and and the mute to speak. And yet they've seen it all, and this generation keeps failing to rightly recognize who Jesus is, that he's the powerful Son of God. And so Jesus' words here, as he speaks to the Father and to the crowd, they're not words of of some kind of off-the-cuff, hot-headed, loose-speaking kind of guy. It's it's not, you know, your, your boss at a bad time where it's that time of the morning where they haven't had the morning coffee yet and they bite your head off. No, this is a right rebuke. Jesus is rightly displeased at this generation. It's a rebuke at a generation of God's people who have experienced God like no other generation of Israel before, like no other of God's people before these people. You see, this generation of Israel and of God's people have seen and have had Jesus with them in the flesh, doing all these incredible things, and yet they are so slow to believe. And they're slow to believe the big truths that Jesus is none other than the Messiah, the almighty Son of God, but also slow to believe even the little things, that Jesus can actually heal this boy, that that the disciples had been given the power to heal this boy, that the Father should have believed that the disciples could have healed this boy. And while Jesus is clearly displeased at this unbelieving generation, it's actually no surprise to him. He knows the hardness of their hearts. Uh, He knows how slow they've been to believe and understand. Even his own disciples, he knows how slow they've been to understand. 
And that's why on two occasions already, Jesus has said to this generation that he would show them the greatest of all signs. He said he would show them the sign of Jonah. And if you remember those parts of Matthew's gospel, the point was that that the sign of Jonah would be Jesus' resurrection, that he would come back from the dead, and that would be the great sign that once and for all would show, I am the Messiah, I am the Son of God. And after that sign, there will be no more excuse for unbelief. And after that sign, there will be no more mercy from Jesus for unbelief. Because Jesus here, he is merciful. Uh, the disciples didn't believe, the Father didn't believe. And what, what did Jesus do? He didn't just have a go at them. He, he then had mercy and, and healed the boy. But time will come where Jesus will not have mercy for unbelief anymore and has come in his resurrection. And it's interesting that, uh, that the people today are, are very much like the generation of Jesus' day. If you talk to people about God, they're very much like that generation because they keep asking for signs. If you ask someone, do you believe in God or do you believe in Jesus? Often people say, well, if only God would give me a sign, then I would believe. If only God would let me know he's really there. If only God would show himself to me. And the problem is that people don't realize God already has. You see, when people say those sorts of things, I feel a little bit like Jesus here. I feel a little bit like Jesus would have felt before his own generation. See, what would Jesus say today if someone says, Hey, God, can you show yourself to me? Well, Jesus would just say, you unbelieving generation. What else do you want? See, the almighty, all-powerful God of all things has become one of us in history. God became man in Jesus the Son. And if that wasn't enough, when God stepped into history 2,000 years ago, he made it clear that Jesus was God, that Jesus is God. He did all those things that only God could do, miracle after miracle, and it's written down for us to read. It's recorded for us to know. And if all that wasn't enough, well, then the greatest sign of all, a man killed and buried for all to see and yet raised from the dead. You see, since the resurrection of Jesus, there has been no reason for any generation to be unbelieving. Jesus has given us every reason to trust and believe that he is Messiah, that he is Son of God. And because of that, I think there's a clear warning, not only for Jesus' generation here, but also for ours. A clear warning that woe to those of our generation who are unbelieving. And just remember what Jesus said, uh, even to his own generation back in Matthew chapter 11. It's up on the screen, Matthew chapter 11. It's a bit small, hopefully you can read it. But Jesus said this to his generation. He said, Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles that were done in you, because Jesus had done miracles before them, if the miracles that were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented in sackcloth and ashes long ago. But I tell you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will go down to Hades. For if the miracles that were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until today. But I tell you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. And so just imagine what Jesus would say to those of our generation who reject him. For those of our generation who failed to repent at the greatest sign of all, 
God the Son, risen from the dead, resurrection, seated at the right hand of God. You see, Jesus would say, woe to you, 21st century world, for the greatest miracle has been done, and yet you rejected me, rejected the Son of God. See, this is a clear warning, not only for Jesus' generation, but for ours, to trust the Word of God and to trust what Jesus has done in his resurrection, the greatest of all signs. But uh, our passage uh, does move on to uh, a debrief between uh, Jesus and the disciples. And it's almost like this is a, a bit of a kind of post-match, post-game wrap-up. So, you know, team disciple have been on the field playing their game. And it's evident for all to see they've had a shocker. They should have been able to heal this kid, but they didn't. They've messed up. And so Captain Coach Jesus comes on the field and he saves the day. He heals the boy. And the team of disciples, they're kind of left wondering, well, why? You know, why couldn't we do it? Have a look at verse 19. Verse 19. Then the disciples approached Jesus privately and said, why couldn't we drive out the demon? Why couldn't we drive it out? And Jesus replies, because of your little faith. And this is point two on your outlines. And we've seen this before, haven't we? Uh, Three times already Jesus has called out the disciples for their little faith. Uh, Remember the first time they were on the boat together in the Sea of Galilee. Jesus was having a nap. The big storm came and started to rage. And the disciples, they scared for their lives. They, they, They were screaming for Jesus to wake up because they were scared they would die. And what does Jesus do? He gets up, wakes up, rebukes the wind and the waves, and he says to the disciples... You of little faith, why were you scared? I'm the son of God. I'm on the boat with you. Why would you be afraid for your life? I'm here. I'm with you. And the second time was very similar with uh, Peter walking on the water again on the, on the Sea of Galilee. And uh, the big storm was there and Peter started walking towards Jesus. And then he got scared by the wind and the waves and he started to doubt and started to sink. And Jesus says to Peter, you of little faith. Why did you doubt? Why were you afraid? I'm the son, I'm the son of God. Why would you be fearful? And the third time, a couple of weeks ago, when the disciples asked about the bread, remember that little scene about the bread? Jesus says, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees. And that day, the disciples forgot lunch, and they thought, oh, Jesus is annoyed because we forgot the bread. And Jesus, I think, face palm, and uh, just thinks, hold on, didn't I just feed 5,000 people with two loaves of bread? Well, two fish and five loaves of bread? Uh, And Jesus is saying again, I'm the Son of God. You have little faith. Why don't you believe? And every time there's those moments where Jesus says, you of little faith, the point is so clear. He's saying to his disciples, why don't you trust me when I am the Son of God? Why are you so slow to see that I am God and so fail to put your faith in me? And so in this little kind of post-game wrap-up with his disciples, Jesus again reminds them whose team they're on. They're on Jesus' team. The Son of God is their captain coach. Just imagine you're on the team that has every world superstar on that team. The best of the best on your team. And the best of all the best is the captain of that team. And just imagine you're playing some made-up team that has the worst of all possible plays in the world on that team. Imagine, for instance, you're playing, I don't know, Queensland in origin, in case you saw the results. You see, if you were on that team that had all the superstars and you were playing the hack team, you would be very confident. Why wouldn't you have confidence? Why would you worry? There's no doubt you will win. There's no doubt you will be victorious. You'd have every confidence. And that's really Jesus' point with what he says next. So you have a look again at verse 20. 
And I won't read uh, verse 21. That really belongs uh, with Mark's gospel, which is why it's in brackets. And uh, Matthew wouldn't have had that originally, verse 21, but ask me about it later if you want. But look at verse 20. Verse 20, Jesus says to his disciples, For I assure you, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you will tell this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. In other words, if you had believed, you disciples, if you had trusted and had faith that you could drive out that demon, that I, Jesus, as your captain coach, so to speak, gave you the authority to drive out demons, then I assure you, if you had believed, it would have been done. You would have had success easily. If only you had trusted my word. If only you would have seen that nothing is impossible for those who believe the promises of God. And that's really the main point here. You see, they needed to have faith in who Jesus is, the Son of God, and the authority and power of his word. But we do need to be careful on a few fronts with this verse, as I alluded to in, my, in the beginning of the sermon. Because this verse isn't some magical verse that lets the Christian do and be and have whatever they want. Uh, it's not, uh, you know, if only you have enough faith that God will give you a Porsche 911 reimagined by Singer and Williams. Not that I have anything particular in mind. Well, then God will give that to you. You just have to believe enough and he'll turn up in your driveway. Kind of sounds nice, but I know it's not good for me. No, there are two points, two things we must keep clear in mind with this verse. And the first is who Jesus is speaking to. You see, Jesus is speaking to his disciples. In this particular verse, in this particular context, with this verse, it's for the disciples. And Jesus, like we've already seen back in chapter 10, he gave his disciples his word that they would be able to heal, that they could drive out demons and cast out, uh, cure diseases and cast out demons. And so Jesus doesn't promise this to us. You can't heal the sick. Now, maybe you can pray, maybe God might be pleased to do it, but you do not have the power to heal the sick when you see someone sick and just touch them and heal them. We don't have that promise. That's the promise for the disciples. But the second thing is, when the Bible calls us to have faith or to believe, that faith and that believing must always line up with what the Bible says about faith and believing. You see, we're not free to, to make up what it is we want to have faith in or what it is trust is or what it is to believe the word of God. We don't get to make it up. No, God's word tells us what faith looks like. And John Calvin, one of the reformers in the 1500s, writes helpfully on this, I think. It's up on the screen. He says this. He says, Since there is nothing more contradictory to faith than the foolish and unconsidered wishes of our flesh, it follows that where faith reigns, there is no asking for anything indiscriminately, but only for what the Lord promises. And the end bit of what Calvin says there is the key. It's faith that asks in accord with the word and promises of God. And that's, that's the great encouragement and, and confidence for us from this verse. Anything we ask for, Anything we believe in that is in accord with the promises of God and grounded in our trust of God and His Word, God is pleased to do it. He's pleased to give us that. It's His promise. And so this is, this is not a verse that teaches us that we can literally move mountains. I must admit, I hate it when I hear people say that from this verse. That actually, 
If we have enough faith, we can literally move mountains. Jesus is being literal here. We need to grow our faith muscle and all that sort of stuff. I think it is so unhelpful. Now, this is a metaphor. Uh, people who say that, again, I don't think have read the Bible very much. Jesus uses metaphors quite often. Uh, you don't see people out in the streets trying to fish for men by getting a, a fishing net and throwing it over crowds and trying to reel them in. Though that would make evangelism a lot easier. But uh, it's not even a metaphor of Jesus for the mountains of your life. Again, if you put this verse into YouTube, that's what comes up more often than not. Jesus wants to get rid of the mountains in your life that are your obstacles. Rubbish. That's lazy reading. Nowhere do the scriptures promise that God will remove the difficult mountains in your life. And nowhere does the New Testament teach that prosperity and material blessing will be yours if only you believe enough. If only you conquer the mountain of success, well, it will be yours. It's quite the opposite, really. And the scriptures assume we will suffer and have difficulties and treasure and prosperity. Well, the Bible tells us treasures in heaven. That is where blessing is. But all that being said, I don't want us to miss the positive here because it is positive and it is a promise. And faith in the promises of God truly does achieve the seemingly impossible. It does move the immovable. And if Jesus is your Lord and Savior, I just want you to consider yourself for a moment, just to show how powerful faith is. So just think about yourself for a moment. When you heard the promises of God in the gospel message, even though you were dead in trespasses and sin, God made you alive in Jesus, his son, by faith. And when I confessed with my mouth that Jesus is Lord and believed in my heart that God raised him from the dead, well, by my faith, God promised to save me from that eternal judgment that I deserved. And when we believe in the message of Jesus Christ and him crucified, trust that word of God that Jesus was crucified for us and that God has removed us from the domain of darkness and transformed us into the, transferred us into the kingdom of his son, that is the trust we have in God and that is what God does. He calls us to himself and allows us to call him Father. Now, I don't know what you think, but those things are far more impressive than the power to literally move some mountain. Well, take what we've seen in our gospel team uh, in our Need to Know books from a couple of weeks ago. Uh, you might remember that uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 3 came up. And it's one of the great promises, again, of God. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, and we're told there that God is transforming us into the image of his Son that God promises us that he is making us and will make us to be like Jesus, his son. See, that's incredible. So forget you know, the idle desires of those who want to turn Jesus' words here into asking for a Porsche or, or moving those mountains in your life. That's far too small. That's not big picture enough. Now, God's promise to us is that he will make us like Jesus. See, that is worth putting your trust in. That is worth believing and God is and will do it. And so do we believe that? Because we should. That's God's promise to us. He's making us like his son. And that's incredible. And I really could go on and all the other promises of God in the scriptures. But that is where we must understand this verse rightly. Faith rightly placed in the promises of God does and will achieve extraordinary things. And nothing will be impossible 
if it's in line with the word and promises of God. Because God will do it. Because he promises us. But now just uh, very quickly on the last two sections of this chapter, and we'll fly through this. Uh, sorry, because otherwise I'll go way too long. Uh, but Jesus now teaches his disciples on where that faith is rightly placed. And it's as if uh, at this point, after all the talks of healings and demons and casting out and, and the metaphorical power of faith that moves mountains, well, Jesus wants to remind the disciples again of the main game. Uh, and this has been the problem for his generation, for the generation of Jesus' day so far, even for the disciples themselves. They don't understand that Jesus came to die and be raised. They don't understand that the miracles and, and all the wonders that Jesus did, that's just the lead up to the main events. The main event is death and resurrection. And so Jesus again, if you remember from two weeks ago, uh, Jesus again, he tells his disciples, verse 22, have a look, verse 22. He tells them again that the Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men and they will kill him and on the third day he will be raised up. And they, the disciples, were deeply distressed. Which shows, again, they don't quite get it. It's better than last time. Remember last time uh, when Jesus said he's going to be killed? Peter takes Jesus aside and says, no, you're not. And Jesus rebukes him right back. But you can see the disciples here, they still don't quite get what the main game is. Jesus is making it very clear, I will be killed and I will be raised up. And that's to have right faith in me, that I will do those things. And I think that's why Matthew includes this very intriguing little section at the end of the chapter about the, uh, the double drachma tax, the, the, the temple tax. And uh, you might be excused for thinking, well, you know, Matthew, if you know, this is Matthew's gospel. And uh, Matthew was a tax collector. And, you know, maybe Matthew just wanted to add this little bit of tax law in because he's a tax collector. You know, that's his thing. And he thought, oh, there'll be uh, other Christian accountants one day and they might like this little bit of side fact about tax law. Um, but actually, there's more to this little episode. You might be surprised. The double drachma temple tax that's collected in verse 24, uh, it was a yearly collection that happened before Passover every year. And you can read about it back in uh, Exodus chapter 30. So if you want to trace it up, Exodus chapter 30, that's where you need to go. Uh, but in a nutshell, Exodus 30, what this money was for, it was given to the Lord by a person to atone for their sin. And so you'd give this money as a ransom for your life. And Jesus makes it clear uh, in, to Peter in verse 25 and 26 that when it comes to this concept of a kingdom tax, well, the son of the king is exempt. Uh, the, kingdom does, uh, the, the king doesn't tax his own son. The, the royal family never have to pay the tax. That's for everyone else to pay the tax. It's the king's kingdom, so the son doesn't have to pay. And so Jesus, he, he's exempt uh, for the tax accountants out there. He has a tax exemption. And he has it in two ways, actually. Because one, he is the son of God. And so to give money to the temple, well, his father, it's his father's temple, so he doesn't have to pay it. But Jesus is exempt because, again, in Exodus 30, the tax was paid as a ransom to atone between God and the sinner to make atonement. But Jesus never sinned. Jesus is already in perfect relationship with his Father. He doesn't need to atone. But look at what Jesus does in verse 27. Verse 27, Jesus goes ahead anyway and pays the tax. He pays it, and he also pays on behalf of Peter. 
uh, albeit with a very fascinating little fishing experience. But, but Jesus here, he's making a very simple point about his death. He's saying, I will pay the ransom that I am not expected to pay. And I will atone for the lives of others on their behalf. And so with these last two episodes of the, t- of the chapter, Jesus wants his disciples and us to know that at the heart of true and right faith in him is a trust and faith in his death and his resurrection for us. And that's the big take-home point for us today. Faith is all about what one's faith is in. And our faith and trust is in the promises of God. It's in his trustworthiness as God that he will do what he says he will do. And Jesus, you might note, did exactly what he said he would do. He says, I will die and I will rise again on the third day. And Jesus died and he rose again. And Jesus says, I will pay the ransom. And he did by his death on the cross. And so for us, this side of Jesus' death and resurrection, knowing what we do, knowing that Jesus has done what he said he would do, well, there's no reason for us to be those of little faith. There's no reason for us to be like the generation of Jesus' day. And there's every reason for us to be confident in the promises of our great God and to put our faith and trust firmly in him. Amen.